Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954, when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992, when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit, ahead of the 91 FA Cup final, quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. This week's guest is former Villa, New York Cosmos, Coventry, West Brom and England midfielder Steve Hunt. Steve's recently released autobiography, I'm With the Cosmos, looks back at a playing career that saw him overcome an early blow when the club he supported, Aston Villa, transferred him to that mythical NASL team, New York Cosmos. This early blow of being let go by the club he supported as a kid was more than softened by his time in New York, a period that saw him play alongside Pele, Carlos, Alberto, Franz Beckenbauer and the super-confident Italian forward Giorgio Chinaglia and saw him land several soccer Rose Bowls. Driven on by his dream of playing for the national side, Steve returned to England to be part of Gordon Milne's exciting young Coventry team of the late 70s and early 80s before moving on to West Brom, where those England caps finally and deservedly came his way. He returned to his boyhood club Villa in the spring of 86, but the recent league and European champions were relegated at the end of Steve's first full season back at Villa Park. Villa under Graham Taylor bounced back in 87-88, winning promotion at the first attempt, Steve playing his part, but by then a knee injury perhaps down to those early years of playing on the astroturf of the NASL brought his career to an end at the age of just 31. That early retirement brought Steve some understandable difficulties, which he tackles both in his book and this interview in a very honest and frank way. Problems that weren't easily solved, but which were eventually put behind him with the same steely determination that I think drove him on in a career where, at just the age of 20, he found himself in a strange country, cut loose by Villa manager Ron Saunders, surrounded by world-class stars in New York, but missing home terribly. This is Steve Hunt. Tell us about your childhood growing up a stone's throw from Villa Park. Well, I, I grew up in a, a Villa mad family. Both my uncles were, were decent footballers themselves. And that was it, really. I, as soon as I could walk, there, there was a ball at my feet. So that was a kind of bringing I had, you know. Um, and obviously, with Villa Park being just up the road, Villa became my team, like it is with the family. And it was a progression, really. By the time I made it, 
11 years old, I signed schoolboy forms with Villa and then went on to apprenticeship. I think your mum and your uncle Dave still live on the same road, don't they? They do, yeah. Incredibly so, but they do, yeah. It's very clear from your book that family and loyalty is a, a, a huge thing for you. Your dad left home when you were in your teens, and I get the impression that that tightened your bond, not only with your mum, but with your uncles, Dave and Den, who were always there for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, they'd always been there anyway. But obviously, when my dad left, should we say, um, they stood up and became really father figures to me anyway. And it, I, I think it was like a resilience on my part as well. I, I thought, you know, I want to make make it in football. Um, my dad's gone, but I've got my mum, I've got the rest of the family fall back in and I just went for it. The two big passions in your life were Villa and music. The latter was sealed when your uncle Dave took you and your close friend Dean to see The Who in 1969. Tell us about the part that music has played in your life and did that I would say obsessive love. I mean, it's clear it's very important to you. Did that help you switch off from the intensity of football? Yeah, I mean, it, it went hand in hand for me. I, I was Dave, my uncle Dave took me when I was 10 years old to see the Stones. Couldn't hear a thing because of all the screaming going on, you might know. But yeah, I was 10 years old. I was hooked. But that Who gig in 69, I went with Dean, my mate as well. And I thought this is the music for me, definitely. And uh, I've never looked back, to be honest. And it's always played an important part in my life, music. To this day, I'm an avid follower of that style of music. There was a, a brief period where, owing to your love of George Best, uh, you have, in your own words, a brief flirtation with Manchester United. Uh, tell us a little about that. Yeah, well, I think it was um, obviously the when it was Best, Charlton Law, that era. And, you know, every young lad looking at those three would have been impressed and I was so yeah as, as you rightly put it it was a brief flirtation but it was a time when they won the European Cup in 68 and I was, I was following them alongside the Villa of course when that didn't uh, materialise after a while that it kind of broke up that team and United um, I obviously went back to the Villa and supported them I remember your career, and I'll come to that later. I saw you as a, a left-sided midfielder. I didn't know that you'd actually started as a left winger. Yes. What influence did that love for, for George Best play on the type of player that you were in the early part of your career? I loved having the number 11 on my back because he had number 11. Then he started wearing number seven, so I thought, I wonder if I can have a word with the manager and wear seven on my back. I was just obsessed with him, you know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, look, nobody can emulate George Best, can they? Let's be honest. He had a big influence on, on, on me, and I watched him avidly. And to this day, you know, when you look back at what he achieved and what he could have achieved even more, he was just a fantastic player. You sign as an apprentice for Villa. You're 16 in 1972. That almost doesn't happen, and it's only through the intervention of your mum that Villa actually take you on. Explain to listeners what happened. <laughs> Basically, that um, I was told I got the apprenticeship, so I was obviously elated. And a letter came through the door one morning. Nobody knocked the door. It was just posted through. And it read that they'd changed their mind and they'd gone for a lad in Sheffield and I wouldn't be getting the apprenticeship. So obviously I was devastated. One minute I was um, thinking, you know, of, of really good things happening and playing for Villa and all that. And next minute it's taken away. And my mum wasn't having any of it. 
So uh, basically, cut a long story short, she marched me down to Villa Park. She demanded to see the manager, it was Vic Crow then. <laughs> and he, he was full of apologies. He said, there's been a mistake. You, you definitely got the apprenticeship. I'll be having words with the chief scout. And I, I think it, it's almost cost him his job. <laughs> we'll come to it towards the end of the interview when you're at Leicester, I think, uh, working with the young kids there. But the manner in which you originally found out that you weren't being taken on via just a letter posted through your door, that stayed with you, didn't it? That shaped the kind of youth team coach that you went on to be later in your career. I think so. I mean, obviously, uh, when I was at Leicester and Port Vale, you have a, a say on which lads are going to be taken on as pro. Not a total say, obviously, because it's down to the club and finances, but I always thought it was the most difficult job I had is to say to somebody that, I'm sorry, but, you know, we don't think you're good enough. On the other hand, to the ones that were fortunate enough to, to make pro, it was a great job. So it's mixed feelings, really. But the way I was treated, obviously, I didn't want that happening to, to these guys. Villa are gradually hauling themselves up, I think, from Division 3 back to Division 1 in that early to mid-70s period. What was the club like during that period that you joined? And was the progress steady rather than spectacular? The thing is, like, Villa are a massive club. You know, they really were. They had the fan base, the, the stadium, everything going for it, um, training ground. To be in the third division, it was just a nonsense, really. Um, so, yeah, it was a slow progress, but... They got there. I'm glad to say I played a part in getting them up from the second division uh, into the first with one short appearance as substitute <laughs> and, and uh, one home debut. And it was just great to get them back where they belonged. Santos turn up at Villa Park for a friendly in 1972, as if it wasn't enough that within five years you'd actually be playing with Pele. As a teenager, you managed to get yourself in a picture with Pele the night that uh, Santos played at Villa Park. What do you remember about that night? Well, the, the atmosphere was obviously um, second to none. The anticipation of seeing the great man set foot on Villa Park. And I just remember as an apprentice, I thought, oh, is, is there any chance I can get in the changing room and you know rub shoulders with him? And fortunately, it, it happened. So I stuck my head in where I could just to get alongside him. <laughs> Not knowing, of course, that five or six years later, I'd have to be playing alongside him. So it, it was, it's incredible, really. It is staggering, not only that an English player from that time played with Pele, but the fact that you did so so early on in your career, which we'll come to in a bit, that is probably the most staggering aspect of this, that you're playing with these big names so early on. Yeah. You're part of a successful under-18 Villa side that wins the Southern Cup in 1973. I think you beat Ipswich over two legs. Tell us about that period of your career and some of your teammates from that time, because I think most of them went on to carve out very good careers in football, albeit away from Villa Park. Yeah, I mean, it was away from Villa Park. To this day, I can't understand why so many of us were allowed to leave. I mean, we were so successful. We had a, a cracking manager in Frank Upton. All the um, overseas trips we went on, tournaments, we won. As you said, we won the Southern Junior Floodlit Cup. It was a great, great team, great teammates, great manager. Um, and then, obviously, it only lasts for a short period of time because you're taken on pro or you're not. But quite a few of the lads, as you rightly said, have gone on and, and forged careers for themselves. I mean, my best friend was Keith Macefield. And he, he ended up playing uh, in Holland. He uh, married a 
a Dutch girl, and he, he played for Harlem and, and did very well over there. And people like Bobby McDonald, who I ended up playing with at uh, Coventry as well. Quite a few had good careers after that youth team. Ron Saunders becomes Villa manager in 1974. He gets the team promoted back to Division One in his first season. You touched on a few minutes ago your first team debut. That arrived in April, uh, late April 1975 at Villa Park. You're still only 18. You come on as a sub against uh, Sheffield Wednesday, and it's the day that Villa secure their promotion. Uh, a huge game for a local lad to make their debut in. Do you remember much about that day, the moment you found out you were being included? And given there were no mobile phones back in the day, did you have enough time to let your family know that you were playing that day or might be playing that day? Well, the, the actual uh, debut going on a sub was at Sheffield Wednesday. Oh, OK. That was that was the, the first game. And I got on for the last 20 minutes. And the whole of the, the, uh, the away supporters end was absolutely rammed with Villa supporters, obviously. And I had a lot of family and friends on the terraces. So, yeah, I'd let them know uh, by phone. Was, there was no mobiles. Was that the day Villa clinched promotion? They actually clinched promotion on that day, yes. And then three days later, we played Sunderland at home. With promotion clinched and we, I, I made my full debut on that one. Was that the game that ends with a friend of yours running on the pitch taking your shirt and you end up getting charged for the shirt was was it that game it was a Sheffield Wednesday game okay the first game you know, yeah they clinched promotion and you know you try stopping I don't know 12,000 Villa supporters getting over the barriers onto the pitch um, and I just remember getting confronted by Nicky Platts a, a lifelong friend and he says I want your shirt and I said well I can't and before I knew it he ripped it off my back anyway and I got in the changing room and First thing Ron Saunders says, where's your shirt? And I said, somebody's just ripped it off me. He says, you'll pay for that. And he did make me pay for it. So <laughs> I thought, Nicky's still got the shirt. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you if you knew what had become of the shirt. That would be worth oh, yeah. a bit on eBay, I think. Yeah, I think he wore it for a while. <laughs> but I still see him regularly and he, he's still got the shirt. There are pictures that anyone can see online of Ron Saunders as, as manager putting Villa teams through their pre-season paces. And occasionally you see managers, even now, who, um, as they reach middle age, they've put on quite a lot of weight. But, you know, you'll see pictures of Ron Saunders in shorts, topless. And it's almost he's built like a modern footballer, except 40 years ago. It's quite striking yeah. for the time. So it's clear from that that fitness was a huge thing for him. How intense were those training sessions? Oh, massively. Um, he used to take us regularly on a, on a coach to Elmden near, funny enough, near Birmingham City's training ground, to the highest hills he could find. And he'd stand at the top, as you rightly said, topless with his muscles bulging, blow his whistle, and he had to run from the bottom to the top many, many times. And the, the thing is about him, when you got close to him, he started running backwards and you had to like catch him up. So you were knackered running up the hill and then you had to do a sprint to get past him. But uh, yeah, he, he was a fit man. He always said that if you if your cheeks were sunken, you were fit. So he used to pinch your cheeks to see if there was any loose skin there to see how fit you was. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I think outside of uh, any sport, if your cheeks were sunken, some people might be advising you to eat a bit more healthily. Yeah, yeah, but exactly, exactly. I, I did read that. I read that passage, and I'm with the Cosmos, and I thought uh, maybe if you're in sport, that's acceptable. But in real life, that's not a not a great look. One of your roommates early on at Villa was John Burridge, and I'm guessing most listeners hearing this will be familiar with his eccentricities. And there are a couple of videos online of some of his pre-match warm-up routines, and they're just extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it. Just a ridiculously flexible body. And you had something of a strange night rooming with him, I think, before a game at Leeds. Tell us about that. Yeah, we were playing Leeds, we stayed in a hotel overnight and I was roomed up with Budgie. Um, and we all know Budgie's uh, a fun guy, shall we say. <laughs> but I, I, um, we fell asleep, uh, middle of the night, three, four o'clock, I could hear this something going on in the room, like heavy panting or something, and obviously I've got to be concerned. Uh, <laughs> turn, turn the light on and there's Budgie and he's, he's saying, Steve, throw that orange for me. And I'm, I'm like half asleep. I ended up throwing oranges around the room for him to dive like a goalkeeper onto the bed. And I said, Budge, it's three in the morning. He says, you've got to keep fit, Bumsy. You've got to keep fit. And that, that's what he was like. He was absolutely crazy. But, you know, he, he worked so hard. You know, his big idol was Peter Shilton. And he would actually pay to go and stand in, on the terraces behind Peter Shilton to watch him. He's one of those names that you look at the 1977 Villa League Cup final lineup and you think, oh, John Burridge was playing for Villa and Chris Nichol was playing for Villa. And there's so many names that within a year yeah. or two were just gone from that team. It's I interviewed Richard Sydenham recently on his Villa book and you feature in that. And one of the things I, I got from that book was that Ron Saunders, he was there for eight years and normally in an eight-year cycle, for a manager he might build two teams but Ron Saunders appeared to be constantly breaking up the team and you know shipping out players bringing other players in there was a yeah. divide between the Doug Ellis camp and people perceived to be loyal to the manager and in amongst that uh, and there's no question in Ron Saunders's success but opinion remains divided on what type of man manager he was and for quite a few former players particularly the young ones he came across as a a bit of a bully your own relationship with him it wasn't the best was it how how hard was that for you to deal with as a young player uh he was feared you know he he, he ruled the nine rod if you like I, I i think it's a bit far to say bullied but I can understand why people would see it that way. Um, he was very, very tough. Um, if you weren't in the first team, never spoke to you. You know, and that's what I thought was wrong about it all. He, you know, young players need uh, guidance, and sometimes they need an arm around them. Sometimes they need a rollicking. We had none of that. He, he, he just ignored you basically, unless you was in the first team. And obviously, he was all right with you then. <laughs> You make seven appearances in total for the first team. Which of the experienced players from that time uh, helped you most as you, you know, when you went into that Villa dressing room? Oh, well, you mentioned Chris Nicholl, Ian Ross, Brian Little was playing at the time. To be honest, it was an experienced team that we had, Ray Graydon. So there wasn't short of um, people helping me. Um, I felt quite at home, to be honest. And Although the nerves before a game, uh, being amongst you know that kind of company, um, as soon as you cross the white line, you just got on with it. 76-77, that's a good season for Villa. They finished fourth, which I think is their highest league placing in 40 or so years. 
they win the League Cup after a second replay at Everton. Your first spell at Villa, though, is already coming to an end. Did that come as a, a, a shock to you? And were you told by the manager in any detail why you were being moved on? Well, what was strange about it was I'd played in the League Cup quarterfinal against Millwall. Started the game, he told me I'd done well. And before you know it, he called me in his office a couple of weeks later and said he'd been offered money for me to, to join another club and he'd taken it. So I'd gone from the highs of being told I was doing well at the time to being told I could leave. So it was kind of a bombshell, to be honest. And by that period, you'd settled down, you'd married your first wife. And so a couple of months after that, you're suddenly being sold. What was your first reaction to hearing it was Cosmos that were in for you? And how much did you know about them and the NASL? Absolutely nothing. Um, (laughs) He he, he said, uh, there's a guy in the canteen who wants to talk to you. Um, I've agreed a fee that you can go. He's from the New York Cosmos. And there was a silence. I remember I I, I didn't know what to say because it was just a bombshell out of the blue. I wasn't expecting it. Um, I thought, but if he's willing to let me go, I'm going to have to accept it. And I'll go and have a chat with this guy in the canteen. (laughs) The guy that, uh, that was in there was Joe Mallett, who became great friends with a lovely man and he started talking about American soccer as they call it and New York and I said I've got to be honest Joe I didn't even know they were playing football over there <laughs> you know and he says well you'll have some interesting teammates and I says yeah who are we talking about and of course he, <laughs> the magical name Pele got put in front of me and I thought well you know that just swings it you know the, the opportunity to go and play with a great guy I don't know what the standard was like in in America at the time or anything. So I was going out there blind, really. But the fact that I could play with with this great guy, uh, I decided to do it. Before we go on to this incredible period in your career, do you have a theory as to why Ron Saunders got rid of so many of that youth team from the early to mid-70s? I'd, I'd love to have asked him, to be honest, but... Um, I don't know. As you say, you, you, you change a team many, many times, you know, successful teams, whether he saw it as, you know, freshen it up all the time so they wouldn't get stale. I don't know. But the main thing is those players from that youth team went on and, and got themselves really good careers. Charlie Aitken, Villa's record appearance holder, I think he spent a season with Cosmos after also being shown the door by Saunders at Villa. What role did he play in your move to Cosmos? Oh, massive. Um, I got to, I didn't realise, but Charlie was instrumental in getting me there, really, because he was already over in New York and he recommended me. They were looking for a left winger. So they, they came and scouted me on his advice. And I'm great friends with Charlie over there. He, he was fantastic to me. He looked after me in those early years. You signed for Cosmos, it should be said, sporting a, a curious look, a, a bandage round <laughs> one of your ears. What was behind that? A giant uh, Rhodesian Ridgeback belonging to my one of my best friends. I, I, obviously, it all happened very, very quickly, this. And so the night before I was due to fly out, I went and visited as many friends and family as I could. He had a Rhodesian Ridgeback and we're doing a bit of a play fight and he bit me ear. And uh, you know how your ear bleeds, yeah. you know, the slightest, and it was gushing. So I was off up to A&E. The night before, I'm out to go and meet Pele. And they put this huge bandage on me. It was, you know, it's like a big beehive hanging from my earlobe. 
so that, that's how I arrived in uh, well in Bermuda for pre-season. <laughs> Your autobiography is called I'm with the Cosmos. Tell us about that phrase. Where does it come from? It, it was a phrase that was, was used quite often for, with, with the players. Um, I didn't use it. I was quite embarrassed to use it, to be honest, but it, it was used to jump queues at nightclubs, restaurants, and you just literally went up and said, oh, I'm with the Cosmos, and they'd let you in. Studio 54, which was massive then, obviously. Uh, not my kind of music, by the way, but I thought, I've got to see this place. <laughs> so uh, I went in, I went up into the viewing gallery and had a look at this place, and I've never seen anything like it, you know. The range of people in there, <laughs> but that, that's where the phrase comes from. You know, you, you're literally treated like royalty playing for the cosmos. I don't think anyone could say that the NASL or the modern day MSL is, you know, one of the greatest leagues in the world. But the thing about cosmos is they are almost this mythical team. You look at the romantic teams of world football, you talk about Ajax, Real Madrid, Barcelona, you'd probably throw teams like Santos and Boca Juniors in there, but you'd throw in cosmos, wouldn't you? Definitely. I mean, you still see people now wearing the Cosmos shirt. You know, it's, it's, the brand, the, the label, as you say, something mythical about it. And I, I was just blessed to be able to play there at the at the height of their success. You seem to have a, a good relationship with Pele, both on and off the pitch. He was 36 when you joined. What kind of footballer was he by this stage? Everything you'd expect, apart from he'd lost a, you know, a little bit of his pace. But the, the position he played, which was obviously in his number 10 position, just behind the, the striker. And it, everything you can think about him, all his basics or, or what you need with football was there. It was 10 out of 10, 100%. But it was his step overs, his turns, his dribbles, you know, his creating space. Everything was still there. And it, I was just in awe at the beginning. You know, I don't think I blinked for about a month. Realised I was, I was rubbing shoulders with him. By your own admission, you could be hot-headed in your younger days. And there's a curious incident on the pitch early on where Pele berates you for not passing to him and uh, you end up shooting yourself. Uh, you respond by putting your fingers in your ears. Tell our listeners what happens next in that game. To be honest, I wish I could have shot myself after I'd done it. <laughs> but um, basically, uh, I, I had a cracking shot. It was my right foot as well, which usually I only used to stand on. And it just grazed the, the crossbar. But Pelle wasn't happy. He thought I should have laid the ball off to him in a better position, which I probably should have done. And he let me know. I mean, obviously, he was speaking Portuguese, and I wasn't very up on Portuguese. I was only up on Bromley at the time. <laughs> right. And stupidly, I put my fingers in my ear and told him where to go. And 10 seconds later, the ball went up and I was substituted. You know, you, you can't do that to the great man. <laughs> so I learned quickly. So they were letting you know that is the man, Pelé is the man. But we will yeah. find out shortly that there was another man at Cosmos who was convinced that he was the man and you had a few problems with him. We'll come to that uh, in a moment. I suppose the stereotype image we have of the NASL, and again, it's something that still dogs the MSL to this day, is it's very glamorous, but it's, uh, it's perhaps home to veteran greats. What was the standard of play in the NASL in your first spell? And who were the Cosmos's big rivals? I was quite surprised how, how good the, the standard was. There, there wasn't 20 great teams, you know, uh, but there was a good six to eight decent sides, you know, competitive sides. And the football 
suited me down to the ground because that's exactly what it was. It was, it was mainly on the ground. So it was a learning curve getting used to playing with all these different international players and from various parts of the world. But the standard was good that year. It was good. And I would say perhaps the second year, we probably had an even better team. And that was without Pele. You know, if he'd have played in that second year, nobody would have stopped us, to be honest. It wasn't all glamour, though. There was a a difficult adjustment in that first season for you and your your first wife. Were there times where the homesickness was such a problem that you were seriously thinking of returning to England? Because you were so young at the time. Without doubt. I mean, we got married in the January. I was in America by February. So within a month, you know, we, we got married, we bought our first house, all settled, thought, got a career with the villa. Next thing you know, we're in America, you know, and she was fully behind me, uh, which was great. But we were stuck out in the sticks a little bit with no transport. Uh, I was having to rely on other players to pick me up and things like that. So, yeah, it, it was uh, some testing times and we were pretty down and homesick at that time. I suppose in those days, you wouldn't have had something like we see nowadays, a player liaison officer helping foreign players to settle in. I, I guess there was none no. of that, right? No, none of that, no. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. Your first two Cosmos games, I don't think many players could say this. They were in Las Vegas and then Hawaii, which does sound very glamorous. But you do mention that away trips in the States were hard and I think in more recent times when Steven Gerrard was at the Galaxy he mentioned that the away games the the, the travel times and the periods you were away from home were really a shock to him I mean when you had an away game you were literally out on the road for days yeah how hard is that physically for a footballer I wouldn't say it was hard physically it was more mentally because obviously the the state is such a big country and you know, the, the the franchises were all over the state. So the plan was to play two, sometimes three away games on the trot to get them out of the way and then return to New York and have a couple of games at home. So there was a lot of travelling, seeing a lot of different cities, but it was just usually hotel rooms, training and playing. But yeah, yeah it took a lot out of you, but I'd say more mentally. Your first manager at Cosmos, Gordon Bradley, Sunderland-born, capped by the US in the early 70s, I think. What kind of manager was he? And was he tough enough to manage a dressing room of huge personalities? Oh, he's a great guy. Um, him and Joe. Uh, Joe was his assistant. I, I would imagine it, w- it would be a nightmare to, to, uh, to manage the Cosmos at that time. You know, there's a lot of, lot of uh, language barriers to, to overcome. And obviously, we're talking about players that have one World Cups, you know, to keep them all happy and how they want to, to be must have been very, very hard. But he, he, was a, he was a good manager. He was a good manager. A lot of the pitches in the NASL at the time were AstroTurf, including the pitch at uh, Giant Stadium where Cosmos played. And we might turn up our nose at that over here, but you make a good point that pitches back in England at the time were more often than not mud baths. Yeah. What was it like being exposed to AstroTurf so early on in your career? And did that in any way serve you well in your later career? Oh, without doubt, yeah. I mean, the thing is about AstroTurf, if your passing is not accurate, then the ball goes out of play. Right. <laughs> or, or you give the ball away. Whereas 
on grass it can slow it up a little bit or it needs a divot and you know you can make an excuse so you know but with astroturf you have to be accurate and so my first recollection of astroturf my first game I went in for a slide tackle and ripped myself apart I mean I was stinging for days after that so I thought that won't happen again I'll be doing no more slow slide tackling you know but the skill aspect astroturf was great Franz Beckenbauer arrives after you at the Cosmos. Was that still in your first season there? It was, yeah. I, I think he heard that I joined, so he thought he'd, he'd come and... <laughs> that, that was going to be my next question. Um, Carlos Alberto, he then comes along yeah. too, meaning Beckenbauer yeah. can step into a more advanced role. Yeah. With all these world-class, still world-class, but nevertheless veterans arriving, did you ever consider how the hell is the NASL affording all of this? Is this sustainable? <laughs> well, I mean, the backing that the Cosmos had was Warner Brothers, which was vast, and they threw lots of money at it. Unfortunately, a lot of clubs thought they could keep up with it and threw a lot of money, but folded because of that. It was it was a bit like the Harlem Globetrotters, really. It really was, you know. At the end of the season, they tour the world every year, you know, parading these these stars. Um, I always, I did question whether I was good enough to be amongst it at the beginning. I thought, how come a, a lad from the back streets of Birmingham that's played seven games for Villa be part of this? Especially when uh, Franz and Carlos joined, we went to another level. And what I did, I thought, I'm going to give it my best shot here. And I ended up uh, doing pretty well. Was Charlie Aitken there for much of your time? Was he there for that first season as well? Unfortunately, he got injured in the first season. Um, he tore his hamstring really badly. So uh, he, he more or less finished his career. But while he was there, he, he, you know, he was one of the, the guys that settled me in at the Cosmos. Your relationship with Franz Beckenbauer seems to be so good that the pair of you even do a brute aftershave uh, together. <laughs> How did that come about and what do you recall of that? Well, I, I knew he was doing this advert, but um, I, I don't know who asked me. I can't remember who asked me, but they said, do you fancy working alongside Franz on this commercial? You know, so yeah, I'll have, I'll have a bit of that. So we did it and it was quite fascinating to see how it all came together. Uh, splashing it on and all that but he got all the glamour and I was just in the background having to make silly noises by the way I had to like pretend I was doing Franz's noises when he was sweating and running and that and I was it was embarrassing but a bit of dubbing yeah precisely but yeah do you know I've never seen the commercial right I'll see if I can dig it up on YouTube uh no best not <laughs> We're going to come to the man who definitely thought he was the man, may not have been the man, but in his eyes, he was definitely the man. And you had a, a complicated relationship with him, Giorgio Chinaglia. And anyone who knows anything about the Cosmos will know about this fiery, super confident Italian striker. <laughs> you, you seem to have an up and down relationship with him, but on the pitch, it works well. Yeah, I mean, again, in the early days, I think the fact that I, I, my age and I was homesick and all that, I weren't in the best of mind frames. And one training session, I basically told him he was lazy and he, he, he threw a punch and we had a bit of a set to put it that way. And I think it was Charlie that dragged me off. <laughs> Good old Charlie. To be honest, he sat me down after that and he said, look, Steve, he says, I am lazy. He says, but what you're here to do, 
and what you've been bought for is to supply me with crosses and passes for me to score goals. Nothing else. It's not for yourself, it's for me. I score the goals. So I took it on board. I thought, fair enough. And, you know, we did get on really well after that. Uh, okay, we didn't socialise that much, but he was a fantastic goal scorer. Probably the best, well, he was the best I'd play with. And he was right. My job was to feed him. Never mind Pele, it was Georgia that had to score the goals. It's possible that this interview may never have happened without the intervention of Giorgio Shinaglia after you, um, the hot-headed young Steve Hunt, in a game, I think, at Lazio, uh, Shinaglia's former club, you make an angry gesture to fans. And basically, it's it's only the intervention of uh, Shinaglia that saves you from uh, some serious grief in that game. What can you tell us about that? Basically, I didn't make any gesture to the, the supporters. I was celebrating the, my goal from about oh, right, 25 yeah. yards. The one in the top corner, you know, one of them lucky ones. And I'm doing like cartwheels and running around the pitch and George is chasing after me. And I thought he'd be congratulating me, but it was to tell me to calm down and stop. Otherwise, I'd be in trouble. And I still didn't get it. I didn't understand why. But at half time, when the whistle went, he came straight over to me. He says, you walk off the pitch with me. And I said, well, what's the problem? He says, you don't celebrate here like that. And I, right. And I got to the tunnel and the tunnel was lined with the Lazio players. And he put his arm around me, Giorgio, and got me through. So I owe him a lot. <laughs> as tasty as some of those Villa Birmingham games can be, uh, that game sounds a, a, a bit scarier than, than the average Midlands derby, perhaps. It was, yeah. It was, it was an eye-opener, I must admit. I, I mean, I thought you could go anywhere in the world and celebrate a goal, as long as you didn't do it in front of their supporters and goad them, if you like. But obviously not. And as I say, it took Giorgio to, uh, to get me through the, uh, yeah, the gladiator <laughs> tunnel. <laughs> there are back-to-back soccer bowls in 77 and 78. The arrival of Carlos Alberto, you say, plays a big part in Cosmos making the playoffs in 77 where I think you face first of all you face Tampa Bay Rowdies in a single game then and this is where I start to get mixed up you had a best in three series against Fort Lauderdale you won the first leg 8-3 but you explained that the playoffs don't have the aggregate score in operation do they so it's effectively a 1-0 win yeah you have to win home and away to go through you have to win both games outright and obviously, we won the first one outright. But when we went down to Fort Lauderdale, we ended up drawing the game. And that still didn't count as going through. So you win one and draw one, and you still don't go through. You've got to win. So it okay. goes into uh, a 30-minute extra time. Uh, again, it, it ended as a draw. Then it goes to a shootout, what they had in replace of penalties. Which you didn't and, enjoy, did you? You didn't enjoy no. shootouts. No, it was, there was a large percentage of players missed from those situations. The, the goalkeepers had nothing to lose and they uh, used many tricks, shall we say, to, to put you off. Um, sometimes they come running out, sometimes they run out and run back and you've only got five seconds to unleash your shot. Right. And yet I was struggling up until that game and Franz said, try the outside of your foot rather than the inside, which we know he was renowned for. So I tried it that game. It actually worked. And we did actually win the shootout, so we went through. You beat Rochester Lancers in the semis to progress to the 77 Soccer Bowl. That's in Portland in August 77. Yeah. You play Seattle Sounders. Was that going to be Pele's final game? It was his final game, yeah. And that's where you score one of the most memorable goals of your career, possibly the strangest too. 
yeah, definitely the strangest. I chased the ball down the down the left wing, and the goalkeeper got there before me and gathered it, looked at me, and then looked the other way and started rolling the ball on the floor. And I kept an eye on him, so I thought I'll take a chance and try and nick it off him, which I did manage to. The ball's rolling towards the net, and he's rugby tackled me. We both end up in the net with the ball. <laughs> and there's this like eerie silence in the, in the stadiums. If so, well, does that count? I mean, is it a goal? And of course, when they realised it was, it, as you say, it's it's memorable to me and it's memorable to, to many people from that era because it's such an unusual goal. Similar to the effort that George Best had disallowed for Northern Ireland against England, I think. Absolutely, against Gordon Banks, yeah. To this day, I think that should have been allowed. I saw Pelly do it as well. And it was things like that that, you know, you learn. And I saw an opportunity. And to do it in that game was obviously great because it was for Pelly's last game. So, yeah, it was a remarkable day. And on the pitch, things are, are going really well. Cosmos win that final uh, 2-1. You pick up the award for the game's most valuable player. Was it a given, though, that you'd be staying on at Cosmos for a second season? No, not at all. I mean, uh, we were trying to weigh things up. The homesickness. My first wife had already gone home. She didn't go to the final. She she really was homesick. So she'd been back there for a few weeks. And of course, when you end, end on a high like that, you know, uh, you start thinking, well, should I come back? The nagging thing in my mind was always, can I make it in England? It was always in my mind, can I make it in England? And can I get to the England national team? But uh, what swayed it was um, Armit Ertigan, who's the founder of Atlantic Records, a part of Warner Communication, kind of chased me down, shall we say, and laid things on and made me feel very welcome to go back for the following year. The big change, well, one of several changes, Bradley has moved upstairs and Shenaglia's growing influence at the club plays a part in that, doesn't it? And the new coach is Eddie Fimani. How did he differ from Bradley? Well, he was Giorgio's mate. That's one thing. He, uh, he spoke Italian and... Uh, I think it was uh, Giorgio that wanted him there. So the difference was, if you've got Giorgio on, on your side, you won't do too bad as a manager of the Cosmos. Whereas Gordon was, I wouldn't say he wasn't on Giorgio's side, but he just tried to give everybody the same chance. But Eddie was great. He was great with me, uh, different style. Obviously, Gordon, coming from the English background, it was predominantly an English style of game, but not so much in the air. Uh, whereas Eddie was a bit more wor- world-wise and handled all these stars very well. Two new arrivals in your second season with Cosmos were Dennis Stewart from Manchester City and a player that you rave about, Vladislav Bogicevic from Red Star Belgrade. What did they bring to that team? Well, like I mentioned earlier, that really elevated us. Um, if Pelly could have played in that team, I'm sure he would have loved to. We'd have been really, really strong. Bogey, as we call him, well, as I said, Bogacivic, Bogey was incredible. He was about six foot four with a like a wand of a left foot, uh, creating goals, scoring goals. Fantastic player. And Dennis, of course, although he was close to the end of his career, um, he was still very, very fit. And he, he bought something extra. I mean, I learned such a lot off Dennis on a, off the pitch because he'd done it back in England. I hadn't. So I was picking his brains daily on that. But I learned a lot from Dennis when he when he arrived. Cosmos retained the Soccer Bowl in 78, beating the Tampa Bay Rowdies 3-1. 
Is that game slightly overshadowed by the 77 win, the, the emotion of the 77 win and that being Pele's last game and your unusual goal? Or where, where does that 78 win rank for you? Uh, exactly the same emotion-wise because that was my farewell game, the 78 final, because I'd, I'd agreed to sign for Coventry back in England. Um, the, the 77 one was magical because it was Pele's day. You know, we had to do it for Pele. Whereas when Pelé retired, we became uh, a stronger team, you know, overall. And I'd say it was a tougher season, the 78 season, a lot of good teams. Uh, but of course, it was also special because it was at um, Giant Stadium, New York, the final. So we were on home territory. But obviously I was emotional because I knew that would be my last game or thought it would be. Before we leave your spell, the first spell with the Cosmos, some of the on-pitch entries for the teams were were extraordinary. Um, a man soaring through a log at Portland Timbers. Uh, th- this one, this one is just very unusual. A pianist providing a live soundtrack to the game, speeding up and slowing down according to what was happening on the pitch. I've read another book where a couple of the managers arrived in coffins for one game. I mean, what others <laughs> do you recall? It's just, it's 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 so strange. Yeah, oh, the, the coffin one, yeah, that's in the book. So we'll, we'll keep that one. And the Hells Angels, we'll keep that one. Yeah. We went, we played in Denver. The captain, manager captain there was uh, Dave Clements, the old Coventry player. And uh, our introduction onto the pitch was Dave Clements and Pele on horseback with cowboy <laughs> hats on. <laughs> and we, we were following behind the two horses. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't first behind the horse, by the way. Um, <laughs> I take your point. Yeah, but yeah, they they led us onto the pitch. I, I, I mean, it's just incredible. Can you imagine that back home? You know, if you, I was telling people, they wouldn't believe me. I said, "Yeah, cowboy hats on horseback. We had to follow them out." What aspects of the NASL did you think I wouldn't mind seeing that though in England? Well, they touched on it back here. The thirty-five yard line. Right. I really, I really got on with that. I, I thought it encouraged um, teams. Well, teams couldn't push up to the halfway line; they could only push up to the thirty-five yard line, which made it a more open game. And obviously, for skillful players, it enabled them to see more of the ball. And certainly, the long ball was very min- minimal. So I, I enjoyed the thirty-five yard line. I, I thought it might catch on here. I think they trialled it, didn't they, in one of the lesser cups yeah um many years ago they decided not to go with it as you say it wasn't quite your last game for the cosmos the 78 soccer bowl johan cruyff briefly turns up and the cosmos play a three-match exhibition series beginning at chelsea you played in that chelsea game stanford yeah, Braves, did you? yeah at, at, at the blue yeah Cruyff is still only 30 at that point. I mean, he he refused to go to the World Cup in Argentina that year. So he's quite young in comparison to, you know, Beckenbauer and Pele. What was it like to play with him? Well, I, I didn't know it was happening, to be honest. I, I, they rang me up and said, look, we're, we're in London. We're playing Chelsea. We'd love you to play. And I got permission off Coventry. Um, so I headed down there, went in the changing room, sat down next to Johan Cruyff who I didn't know was uh, guesting for us. And by the way, great guy, lovely guy, very welcoming. But I remember we played particularly well against Chelsea that night. And I played left wing and, and Johan Cruyff played inside me. So I was getting 
pass the ball by Johan Cruyff. <laughs> it's, I, mean, I thought I'd done it all with the Pele, you know, Ginalia, Beckenbauer, Alberto, and then Cruyff. And as you say, he was still, well, very fit, very able. And he ran the show that night, to be honest. He, he played exceptionally well. So another privilege. So fortunate to play with these people. Still to come on when shorts were short. He was at the front of the coach, you know, where, where the managers always sit. And I was on the very back seat with a few of the lads. And at the top of his voice, he shouts, hey, Baldy, get down here in front of the whole squad, you know, trying to belittle me. And there's this kind of silence because they knew what I was like. And I thought, what's he going to do? <laughs> but I thought, I'll take that on the chin. I'll go and sit next to him. And that's when he informed me that he was going to stick me out wide. and. At this time, I'd lost uh, pace that I'd had when I was in my early 20s. I felt to get player of the season, I must have done something right in the middle of the park. Um, it was just clear that it wasn't going to happen. You know, he wanted to get rid. But I thought it was very disrespectful of what he did that day. Thank you for downloading When Shorts Were Short. You might be interested in supporting the show's Patreon page. Supporters will get each new episode a fortnight early, as well as bonus episodes exclusive to patrons. Show your support for the podcast at patreon.com forward slash shorts were short. Your support for the podcast is appreciated. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. You're still a left winger when you joined Coventry. Coventry are uh, uh, playing with two wingers in the late 70s. You've got Tommy Hutchinson on the right, an exciting team to watch. Perhaps a little naive at times during that three or four year period. Is that a fair assessment of Coventry as a team back then? Yeah, I mean, from my own point of view, I, it took me a while to settle back into the English game. Totally different to what I played out there. As as you mentioned earlier, that the state of pitches was not great. That was when there was a lot of games being played on them and they were getting churned up. So playing attractive football was almost impossible at times. I think Tommy Hutchinson had his nose put out a little bit because he was playing left wing when I arrived and he got shoved onto the right. But they soon put him back on the left and then I went to the right. So he got his own way in the end. It, it took me it took me a while to, to settle in there. And Coventry, you know, they stayed in that league for so long, you know, with, with uh, least amount of funds, should we say. Um, the team spirit was absolutely fantastic. It really was. That's what stood out for me, pulling together and doing the unexpected and beating the top teams. It's a, a club from that time that really fascinates me because they were quite a forward-thinking club at the time under Jimmy Hill's chairmanship. I think Highfield Road became the country's first all-seater stadium. Jimmy Hill launches an organisation to help the Saudi Arabian national team win the Gulf Cup. The money earned from that venture then goes is invested in the NASL, I think in the Detroit Express first, later the Washington Diplomats. Ultimately, that's Jimmy Hill's undoing at Coventry. There's a new futuristic-looking training ground built that was ahead of its time. And, you know, commentary under Gordon Milne and his coach, Ron Wiley, who becomes something of a uh, of a big coach in your, probably the middle to latter part of your career, becomes a big figure in your career. They're known for bringing young, young players through. So the club is struggling on the pitch, 
but off the pitch, it's a very exciting time, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it, we were second to none. We had everything. But what we didn't have, we didn't have finance in the team. And it swings and roundabouts. What, what do you want? I know what I think the supporters want. They want a successful team. You know, anything else can come secondary. And when you look at what happened when they, they sold Oilfield Road and they're now playing in uh, St Andrews, Birmingham, you know, uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's great having a great facility to train and all see to stadium and all that. But what supporters want is a successful team, something they can relate to. I just felt some of that money should have gone onto the, onto the field for players. Before we come to the breakup of that uh, first Coventry team you were in, by this stage of your career, after readapting to the English game, you're starting to evolve into a left-sided midfielder rather than a left winger. How did that switch come about and were you open to making that transition? I was very open to it. I always wanted to get more involved with the game and the days when there were wingers, it's very rare now for inverted wingers, but I was out now left winger and at times you were relying on other people to, for the service, whereas in the middle of the park, you know, you're in the thick of the action and make things happen. So I was I was really up for it. I think it was Ron Wiley that suggested it to Gordon Mill. Um, and I never looked back then, you know, I, I stuck at that position. The Coventry team that was broken up in the late 70s, early 80s, Bobby McDonald, he moves on to Manchester City, as uh, does Tommy Hutchinson. Mick Ferguson leaves, Ian Wallace goes for big money. I think Mick Ferguson goes for big money too. Terry Yorath has gone to to Tottenham. I mean, I take it those players weren't adequately replaced. There's a lot of experience there, isn't there? What yeah. you just mentioned. Hell of a lot of experience. And they were replaced. But, I mean, Coventry had a fantastic uh, youth setup. Really did. Um, and the lads that were coming through were, were exceptionally good. But you've got to have experience to go with it. And I think that's one thing we lacked. Uh, we did have a spell when we got to the uh, semi-final of the League Cup with a young side with a couple of experienced players myself included but I think that's what was lacking just that little bit more experience amongst the the younger legs and we'd have uh, kicked on I think. The West Ham team that you faced in the League Cup semi-finals that year I mean they were a second division club only in name because they'd won the FA Cup the year before the year you played them in the League Cup they were on their way to the last state of the European Cup Winners Cup they end up taking Liverpool to a replay in the League Cup final that year but that first leg at Highfield Road, I think you win 3-2. That was particularly memorable. Oh, it's, it's such a memorable game. Um, we went 2-0 down. The, the Highfield Road was electric, you know, the supporters. And they lifted us. The supporters lifted us that night. And we came out for the second half. There was no panicking on, on the management side. They just said, you know, keep doing what you're doing. You've been unfortunate. And we get three goals. They lifted the roof that night, the, the supporters. And I'm sure it's etched in the commentary memories of those supporters. It was great to be part of that. You win the ATV Goal of the Season Award for a goal at home to Birmingham. You also win the LWT, London Weekend Television Goal of the Season. I'm assuming that was for the same goal, unless you had two Goal of the Season contenders that year. Was that the same goal? It was for the same goal, yeah. <laughs> and I, I found a, a, a YouTube link to that, which I'll stick in the show notes for, for listeners to watch. Run us through that goal. Oh, right. I remember the ball was coming out the sky in the middle of the park, and I managed to get to it first. Um, and I think, it was, I think it was Archie Gemmell was closest to me. I managed to just tow it away from him to leave him. 
and I played a one-two with Gary Thompson and he gave me a perfect return and I managed to curl it in the top corner from outside the box. One of those that looks great or uh, flies over the bar, but yeah, it just come together right. 1981, uh, the end of the 80-81 season, Gordon Milne is sacked. Dave Sexton, recently fired by Manchester United, takes over. Similar or difference in terms of character and style of football to Gordon Milne? Both quiet managers. They're not, they're not ballers and shouting you down. They got the point over without having to shout and ball at you. You knew when you were the wrong. You know, Loved them both. Uh, enjoyed playing for both of them. Dave was such a football man, and he, he was, I think he was ahead of his time with the coaching side of things then. Um, he was very helpful to me, both on and off the pitch. So I'd say they were pretty similar. They, they had similar thoughts. The club, well, not just Coventry, West Brom and uh, Villa at the end of your career. You, you played for sides after your extraordinary spells at the Cosmos. You played for sides in English football. Villa, certainly a big club. But you were, in your career, constantly battling against relegation. How tough was it mentally to, to do that year in, year out, when you were clearly a confident player? You never stopped dreaming of playing for England, and yet you're finding yourself playing for teams, you know, fighting for their lives to stay in the top division. Well, look, I've put it in the book that the team spirit in those teams, especially with Coventry and West Brom, was was fantastic. Uh, we were struggling and um, we managed to get out of tight situations and it was mentally draining having to do it every single year, I must admit. And that's why I got frustrated. But at the end of the day, I, I wouldn't change anything. You know, yes, it would be great to say you were always playing at the very top of the league. But, you know, it, I've got no regrets about any of it. And I've got some great memories from all the clubs I played with. You returned to Cosmos in 82 briefly. Had the NASL and Cosmos lost some of that razzmatazz from your first spell? And if so, how soon did you pick up on that? I picked up on it straight away when I saw the attendances. When I'd left, we were selling out Giant Stadium, uh, near on 80,000, every single home game. Uh, when I went back, it was nowhere near that. You know, we were down in the 20s, 30s maximum. So I, I knew something was on the decline. Obviously, Pelé had gone you know, uh, long gone. I felt the, the standard of the league was not as strong. There wasn't as, as strong a team as there was back then, or as many of them, should we say. Um, there was just that spark was missing. And it, it, I don't know, it, it, I didn't, I, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy that year. It was, you know, refreshing. And they still had so many good players, but it had gone. You could see it was on, on the down spiral. You mentioned near the beginning of this interview um, a slide in tackle, a painful slide in tackle on the AstroTurf for, for Cosmos. But in your second spell, you play with another great Dutchman, Johan Nieskins, renowned as a very committed player. And uh, you, you write in the book that Nieskins was one of the few players who'd mastered the slide in tackle on AstroTurf. Do you know, to this day, I don't know how he did it. When he was at the club, I always associated Dutch football and I'd seen uh, Johan Nieskins play alongside Cruyff as this, you know, the beautiful game. What I didn't realise was the physical side of Johan Nieskins. And it soon came apparent in training when, you know, the, the rondo that they call it now and keeping the ball away from the guy in the middle. You didn't want Johan 
in the middle of that circle because he would just slaughter everybody in sight. And how he did it on AstroTurf, I don't know. He never had a graze on him, but he threw himself all over the place. It's incredible. Cosmos win a, a third soccer bowl in 82. This time you defeat Seattle Sounders in, in San Diego. Only watched by 22,000 fans. So as you say, clear that the writing was on the wall now for the NASL. But, you know, three seasons with the Cosmos, three soccer bowls. That's a, a pretty nice record for Steve Hunt. Before we resume what is a really strong second half to your career, looking back on both your spells in the States, you, you've been a young player who had to recover from the early blow of not being wanted by the manager of his local club. You took the challenging option of trying out a new country while you're still a kid, when the easier option probably would have been to just drop down the leagues and see if you could work your way up. Oh, yeah. Did the move to New York help you rediscover your love of the game that you might have been in danger of losing towards the end of your first spell at Villa? I think so. I mean, it was a risk. You know, it was a risk going out there because you say it's a different country, different culture. Uh, but I wouldn't change it. No way. I mean, Villa went on to win the European Cup by 82. And I'm often asked if, if I had a choice and I could have been part of that, would I have took it? And I said no, because I'd never been the player I was if I hadn't gone to the States, play with the Cosmos. Um, so, I, like I said earlier, I've got no regrets about any of my career. There's a, a, a staggering stat where between 81 and 83, because of that second link up with Cosmos, you play 115 matches. Now, I know you said you could cope physically with the away games, you know, in the States, the way they were structured. But I mean, how do you cope with 115 matches in a two year period? Well, you know, it's interesting this. When I decided to write this book and I started doing the research and going back over old scrapbooks and various things, that stat jumped out at me. And it kind of triggered something because at the time I didn't realize I just got on with it. You know, I did the Coventry season straight into the American season, come back and did straight the next Coventry season. And as you say, 115 games, not exactly squad rotation. That was it. No. it was just <laughs> but um, and my form did go up and down that in that period. And obviously I didn't put it down to fatigue. I just thought I had an up and down time. But it must have played a massive part when I think about it now. Between the spring of 83 and the start of the following season, there are lots of in and outs at Coventry. Gary Thompson was sold behind Dave Sexton's back to West Brom. You'd both link up at West Brom in the near future. Then you'd link up again at Villa. Mark Haightley, a soon-to-be England international, uh, moves to Portsmouth in 83. Danny Thomas, an outstanding young fullback, goes to Tottenham. So all this talent is just leaving the club. I know that you put in a transfer request in 82 that was turned down. Did seeing all this talent leave harden your resolve to move on? Because there was money being invested in the team, but when Bobby Gould replaced Dave Sexton, it was a lot of players from the lower leagues replacing that talent let's be honest uh, although I didn't have a great time with Bobby he did bring in Stuart Pierce. yeah <laughs> you know and that, that, that's massive when you think about it but yeah he, he did raid the lower leagues and for a, a short period of time it worked because of the energy and the you know the enthusiasm of these players and I'm not saying they were bad players because there wasn't but you need the experience of playing in the top league you know to go along with it and I just felt when I, I saw all those players leaving that 
my time was up there, basically. You, you took up karate whilst at Coventry and you feel that that helped reduce the number of injuries you had. What gave you the idea to take it up and were you immediately hooked and committed to it? I'd, I'd always been interested in that kind of thing, boxing and stuff. And a, a friend had said, oh, you know, he, he went to karate basically and said it's great for stretching and suppleness. And I thought, I'd had a few niggles, you know, and I was starting to get to the mid-20s and, and whatnot. I'm thinking, I'm getting too many niggles now, so I thought I'd give it a go. I didn't tell the club, by the way. I don't think I'd have allowed me. But uh, I tried it, and I did it for that reason, for the suppleness, and that, and it worked. Did you maintain it for the rest of your career? No, no, not okay. at all. No, especially when my knee started deteriorating. I thought it had only aggravated, so unfortunately I had to stop. Just in case I forget, on the knee, did the years of AstroTurf in the States, did that play a part in the deterioration of the knee? I think without doubt. I mean, I had my first uh, cartilage removed when I was 17 at the Villa. Um, And then a couple of years later, I'm playing on AstroTurf every week. So, you know, it was kind of bone on bone. Um, So, yeah, it it did contribute to the the downfall of my knee. And I was to have another cartilage operation in the 80s. And it just went downhill from there. We arrive uh, in the 83-84 season, you sign for West Brom. This is the period of your career that gets you into that England team, all the reward for your driving determination and making the, the courageous decision early on in your career to try life in a, in a foreign country. You play your best football, you say, under Johnny Giles, who's returned to West Brom as manager. I mean, Johnny Giles, of course, one of the greatest midfielders, passing midfielders the English game has ever seen. What did playing under him bring to your game? A lot, actually. I mean, if you can't learn from somebody like Johnny Giles about the art of midfield play, then there's something wrong, isn't there? But we did have um, the, the two other coaches at the club with Johnny then was Norman Hunter and Nobby Stiles. <laughs> so let's just say the the, um, the five-a-sides are interesting. <laughs> Not great for your knee either. No, well, you wanted to be on their side, put it that way. You didn't want to be against them. The training was based all around five-a-sides and the tempo of the game. And it, it, it was like a breath of fresh air for me, to be honest. Um, settled in straight away. Really enjoyed my time. Good partnership with Tony Grealish as well. You, 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 you guys seem to get to know each other's game very quickly. Yeah, we, we were signed the, the same day. And he was like my enforcer, shall we say. And uh, he's a, he a very good player anyway, Tony, but he, he had the art of winning the ball and, and giving it to me and see what I could do with it. And we became very good friends off the pitch as well. So the summer of 84, your form is finally rewarded with an England call-up, get called up for the games at, uh, against Scotland at Hampden and the home friendly against the Soviet Union. You make your debut as a sub in a one-all draw at Hampden Park with your fellow debutant that day, uh, Gary Lineker. Those old British Championship games between Scotland and England, there was very little live football in those days, but that game was always shown. And it was a, it was a massive game. Yeah. And even at Wembley, the Scottish fans would just create an incredible atmosphere. But what was it like to deal with that at Hampden? Well, I remember the, uh, the coach trip from the hotel to, the, to Hampden. And I've, I've saw passionate um, supporters throughout my career, but I've never seen anything like the passion those Scottish supporters of that uh, of that day I, I didn't want to make 
eye contact with any of them, put it that way. You know, the, <laughs> it was clear they didn't want the, the English uh, anywhere near them. But anyway, when I went out onto the pitch for the warm up and all that, I, literally, I think there was perhaps 25 England supporters, you know, and these hundreds of thousands of tartan army. So it was quite intimidating. You make your first Wembley appearance coming on as a sub for John Barnes against the Soviet Union. England lose 2-0. I was actually at this game as a boy, and I, wow. I I remember it well. And it's something that you mention in I'm With The Cosmos. These days, the late Bobby Robson is held, rightly so, in high regard. But my own recollection is that, to this day, I've never seen another manager be abused as much as what he had to endure in the media as England manager. The crowd that day at Wembley, and you touch on it in, in the book, they really turned against the manager. There wasn't a great crowd, but but the atmosphere wasn't great at the end. No, it's hostile, to be honest. I mean, I had my own agenda, obviously, because it was my first appearance at Wembley. So, you know, I was caught up in that. But it, must have been, it, was, it was quite sad to hear that response at the time for, for the manager. Disappointing. It was a tough time, you know. Uh, we weren't getting results. And that's why I thought I'd have more of a chance getting in the team or giving a chance to get in the team at that time. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's a fantastic guy, good manager. The turning point for that England team, I think, certainly in the run-up to the 86 World Cup, the South American tour in 84 restores a bit of confidence in that team. It's a bit of a turning point. You're one of 20 players who head out for the friendlies with Brazil, Uruguay and Chile. And this really surprised me. Only 13 players from a squad of 20 are used. For a start, no Premier League manager would stand for that these days. If, <laughs> you know, a player going yeah. on a South American tour, but not even playing at the yeah. end of the season. Clearly, it was hard for the seven not involved in that end of season tour. You don't make another England appearance, but you do feature in some other squads. Simon Stainrod, the old QPR player and, you know, various other clubs, but at the time with QPR and having a good run of form with QPR at that time, he was unlikely to be chosen again because he takes Bobby Robson to task over that. He does. I must admit, we, we wasn't treated very well, the, the, the guys that were on the fringe of the, the 13, shall we say. We were left to train on our own, um, which I thought was really disappointed being in an England setup. You know, we wanted to be part of part of it we didn't feel we was uh, but Simon was good, becoming increasingly frustrated and decided to let his anger out on on the manager in 84-85 West Brom actually make a brilliant start you lose just uh, one of your first 12 league games and I checked the fixtures that season it's just four defeats in the first 21 games Starts to go wrong. Cyril Regis is sold to Coventry, almost unthinkable with his old form a couple of years earlier. And you do feature in, I think, two or three more England squads that season. And then you just disappear from the the, the England scene. Do you feel that was harsh, given your form and the club's form that season? I, I felt so. I, I, what I thought was harsh, I, I didn't get any phone call as to the reason why or to say that, you know, Keep playing the way you are, and you know you could get back in. There was nothing; it was just silence, and that was the hard thing to swallow. To be honest, it's not as though they were uh, getting fantastic results at international level or performances. So I was one of many, I would imagine, that thought they would have had a chance. But uh, as you say, it just deteriorated. In uh, eighty-five 
86, Gary Thompson moves to Sheffield Wednesday. So in less than a year, Regis and Thompson have gone. It's similar to your time at Coventry when in a space of a few months, Thompson and Haightley are gone. So that's your strike force gone. Garth Crooks, who certainly had done really well at Spurs, he arrives. Imri uh, Varadi arrives. They don't quite do it at West Brom. There's a run of nine successive defeats that leads to Johnny Giles's resignation. Where did it go wrong for Johnny Giles, do you think, in that second spell at West Brom? Well, just looking at that uh, statistic there, you've got Cyril and Gary, who are physically, you know, intimidating to defences. You know, they're great footballers, good on the floor, great in the air, but they had that physical dominance. And they were replaced by two smaller guys, you know, with uh, making angled runs. Really, we needed one of each. You know, right. I, I, that's what I felt. I, I felt with Johnny, he'd done really well. I, I felt there was something triggered him. I don't know what it was, that he, he kind of fell out of love a little bit with the game. Something must have happened. You don't know what goes on off the field. You could just see a change in him. And he went. It, it was a sad time. Nobby Styles briefly takes over. And uh, unfortunately for you, Ron Saunders returns <laughs> and... It's a season when you're named West Brom's Player of the Year, by which time you've gone. It's fair to say that when Ron Saunders turned up, you knew your time was up. Yeah, I had a chance, yeah. I, I thought <laughs> when, when, it, when they announced it was Ron Saunders, I thought, well, I wonder where I'll be next then. You know, it was going to happen. And he made it quite clear. Uh, he said, if you're playing for me, you're playing on the left wing, you're not playing in midfield because I don't like all players in the midfield, which I found very, very odd. Him having worked with one of the best ball players in Gordon Cowan's at Villa. But anyway, he obviously didn't fancy me as a player, and I, I was sold back to Villa, which uh, it You've... disappointed me, because I, I really enjoyed my time at West Brom. And he, he treated you with a, a lack of respect in one of your first encounters with him when he returned. I don't know if you were on the team bus or whatever, but yeah. the manner in which he referred to you was just uh, unnecessary, uh, particularly as you yeah. point out, he was bald. Uh, yeah. He was actually bald. It's it's a strange yeah, one. He was at the front of the coach, you know, where, where the managers always sit, and I was on the very back seat with a few of the lads. And at the top of his voice, he shouts, hey, Baldy, get down here in front of the whole squad, you know, trying to belittle me. And there was this kind of silence because they knew what I was like. And I thought, what's he going to do? <laughs> but I thought, I'll take that on the chin. I'll go and sit next to him. And that's when he informed me that he was going to stick me out wide. And at this time, I'd lost pace that I'd had when I was in my early 20s. Uh, I felt, well, to get player of the season, I must have done something right in the middle of the park. Um, it was just clear that, it wasn't going to happen, you know, he wanted to get rid. But I thought it was very disrespectful of what he did that day. The plus is Villa come in for you, so it's a chance to return to your first love in March 86 for £90,000 plus a player going in the other way. But you didn't actually want to leave Albion. Yeah, I was happy at Albion. I think I think it was a shame that Johnny lost his way and, um, you know, things deteriorated. But with the right manager and the right philosophy, I think we could have turned it around. The villa that you rejoin is a very different villa to to the one you left. All that experience uh, has gone. There are kids now being given their chance, but there's just not enough experience to back that up. I think Andy Blair rejoins Villa with you. 
you just stay up in 86 by three points going into the 86 87 season well actually first of all let's let's talk about Graham Turner working with Graham Turner and also you're reunited with Ron Wiley as well there your old coach at Villa how did you find the club when you returned we were talking earlier about the Ron Saunders era and how he changed teams and players constantly and I couldn't believe that the European champions and you know the English champions European champions 81 82 had got the salt of the the state they were in when, when they went back in 86 you know it, it was unrecognizable many things had happened in those three or four years but yeah they were a very young team Graham was a young manager obviously I knew Ron and that, that those last I think it was about 12 games I played and we stayed up and it was a good achievement that, you know, things clicked. Andy and myself joining, a bit of experience with the young players and things were looking up. I thought, you know, we can turn this round. But the following year was an absolute disaster. It really was. It was a very sad time, both as a, a player and a, as a supporter of the club. There are quite a few promising youngsters in that 86-87 season. Martin Keown has arrived. You've got Paul Elliott. Tony DiRigo has come through. Mark Walters is established. Uh, Steve Hodge has just come from the World Cup with England. Steve Hodge is gone by Christmas. Gary Thompson has arrived. So possibly cause for optimism, but by October, November time, Graham Turner has made way for Billy McNeil. And you're having to have another battle against relegation. Villa go down just five years after winning the European Cup. Billy McNeil's managerial reputation never recovers from that year or less than a year at Villa. And, you know, he's mocked by players. He's at loggerheads with Alan Evans, the Villa captain. You're quite candid, though, in the book. You say that there was a lack of commitment from some Villa players that season. I I felt, and if you still look at it now, that the um, players in that team were good players. Some very good players. Um, you've just mentioned just a few. We lacked direction. I didn't think we had good direction from, from the management when uh, Billy McNeil arrived. Every respect for the guy, for what he's achieved in the game. But I expected better, put it that way. And we lacked direction. And I felt there were certain players in that team that wasn't pulling the weight. That they might say differently, but you know, I, I know a lot of Villa fans. <laughs> And they're of the same opinion that they thought there was players playing to get away, shall we say. And that's always difficult then. If, if, the, if the dressing room's gone and there's lack of respect for the manager, which there was undoubtedly, then there's only one way for the team to go. And that, that's what happened. Graham Taylor is lured by Doug Ellis to Villa Park and has a very successful three years getting Villa promoted in his first season. By the time he takes over as England manager after Italia 90, Villa are back in Europe. You play a, uh, a small part in that promotion year. We'll, we'll come to that in a moment. You weren't enamoured with Taylor's well-known style of football. Was that direct approach really Villa's best chance of getting out of the old second division? Well, with that, that I mean, he was the right choice. By far, he was the right choice. No, I, you know, his style of play didn't suit me. But at the end of the day, the club is bigger than any individual players. And I thought that was a fantastic choice. He turned the, the club on its head, brought all, all his own ideas to, to the fold. And I, I, I didn't disagree with anything that what happened, other than the fact that the style didn't suit me as a player. I had to stop through injury, obviously, but 
I don't think I'd have hung around too long. But they went on to get the promotion and, as you say, a very successful time for them. So you have to retire because of the knee. And I think this is actually before your retirement. You mention a really strange incident in your second spell at Villa. You talk of a close season tour. You come out of a duty-free shop with 500 cigarettes, even though you weren't a smoker. I'm trying to see if I got this right. Were you suddenly a smoker just before your retirement or were those cigarettes one of the things you turned to after your retirement? I turned to them because I knew the retirement was on the horizon. I was bitterly disappointed about that season at Villa. I know as a Villa fan what it means and um, I wouldn't have wanted to be on the terraces watching that that year. And I was I was very down because I knew I was only firing on 80% because of my knee. People like Andy Gray, you know, he put himself through it that year and uh, he really shouldn't have had to because of his injuries. I was just on a downer and and for the life of me, I don't know to this day why I picked up cigarettes or a bottle of brandy or something. You know, it was just a, I don't know. I really don't know why I did it. I've stopped. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you did it's just it's very common to hear of a uh, retired sportsman turning to the bottle but you know the 500 cigarettes i read that yeah. i'm thinking wow that's yeah. that's different yeah well, when i went into coaching and doing kids and that i thought this has got to stop so it did you worked as a coach through the late 80s to, to the mid 90s uh working at Willinghall, port vale you moved to leicester in 91 you played with the manager, Brian Little, at Villa. Uh, you played with Alan Evans in your second spell at Villa. Alan Evans is the coach at Leicester. And you talk about how you were looking forward to the role on a personal level. But this is a difficult part of your life. And the shock of that early retirement, compounded by the breakdown of your marriage. I mean, I'm just reading that as a complete stranger and thinking, just, just as, a, as a guy at this stage in my life, I'm thinking, okay, I can, I can relate to some of that. that that's not easy. You look back at that period of your younger self, half a lifetime ago now. How do you think your younger self managed to come through that? Uh, I must admit it was a, a tough time. It was a dark time. Retirement, divorce, and what I now see as depression. I, at the time, I just thought I was feeling down. <laughs> but now that, you know, depression is, a, is a, in the spotlight quite a bit. And I, I feel that's what it was. I'd, I'd, I'd lost playing football I was just completely lost and coaching couldn't replace it nothing could replace it and I was searching for an answer and it took ages to get through at the other side I'm finally at peace with it but I miss playing the game immensely how important was the other love the love of music during that period did that did that give you anything while you were struggling yeah I mean that's the closest I get to the buzz of uh, playing Live concerts are second to none. I love it. It doesn't replace you actually taking part, but it's just that buzz you get, the the lead up to the concert, the concert itself. I mentioned Springsteen a hell of a lot in my book. He's constantly in there. And his lyrics kind of got me through it as well because he went through a similar thing with his divorce. And I, I always turn to music, always. You know, always relate to it. How and why did your time at Leicester come to an end? And where did that leave you in terms of your feelings for the game by that time? Uh, It's over a period of time. I mean, looking back, I shouldn't have left Port Vale. I had a a great manager there, John Rudge, lovely guy, a fantastic coach, probably the best coach I've ever worked with, Mike Pedgick. 
but when Leicester came calling and you know the facilities at Leicester were a lot better obviously and I knew these guys or thought I knew them when I got there it, it came clear to me that I probably made a mistake to be honest it wasn't what I expected it to be didn't get on well with the chairman at all and, and a few things happened and I, I, the writing was on the wall so I knew inevitably I'd be leaving you make your views on the flaws in this country's coaching system very clear. And uh, I suppose you are what Ron Saunders would call a ball player. And so to be playing in English football at the time of Charles Hughes, which is a, a period in English football, which seemed to have lasted forever. How difficult was it for players such as yourself to function in that era? Well, I did my coaching badge in uh, 1990. And I couldn't believe what, what I was seeing um, in the lecture theatres, what was being preached and Charles Hughes' book, um, The Way Forward. But, you know, it's a bit like taking your driving test. You know, you, you've just got to do what they say and then you start learning after, don't you? Yeah. And that, that's what I did with my coaching badge. I thought, I've just got to get through this. There was, there was others uh, exactly the same as me. In fact, there was many, many thought the same thing. Others... Uh, made more of a view of it and didn't pass but what disappoints me is how long you know it kept going and we were being left behind worldwide uh, certainly in Europe you know we're being left behind through this constant desire to listen to the, the rubbish that was being put out uh, at these coaching sessions. I think anyone who experienced their parents being divorced and you're talking about your, your feelings your estrangement from your dad you're quite a loyal guy and you prize loyalty from others very highly and you talk about wondering what your dad would have thought of you as you went through your career and not having contact with his own grandchildren and that we're going to end on a high note I promise you but I mean that that that, that, that that's a very sad part to the book how did that feel to you to revisit all that well part of wanting to put everything down in writing was the, the episode what happened in, in that period I just think it's very sad. I think it's very, very sad. I, I don't to this day know if he's still alive. Um, I hope he is, and I hope he's had a great life. But it was just disappointing that he's missed out on so many things. He's still my dad. You know, my dad's still out there. Well, I hope he is somewhere. And who knows, he might read the book, and I might get a knock on the door, or maybe a phone call. Who knows? Let's hope. You had some real highs in your career, so you've overcome that setback uh, at Villa. You've overcome setbacks in your personal life. You're happily married again and, and have been for, for some time. There's clearly a steely determination about you that helped you thrive, at least on the pitch, uh, in a foreign country at, at a young age. There's the sadness, the disappointment that certain people in your life didn't get to see what you did with your career. You found happiness, though, just, just in removing yourself from the game, haven't you? I mean, tell us what yeah. you're doing with your life now. Well, I'm, uh, I'm a caretaker at the uh, local primary school, which I enjoy immensely. And it, no football involved. Um, I'm just part of the team at the primary school. I mean, obviously, I've been coaching kids for many years now, but I've put it all behind me. Football's totally put to one side and I'm enjoying life outside it. Do you think you needed to leave football to get to that point? I think I should have left football many years ago. I, I did listen to people, family and friends saying, look, you've got a talent. You should keep in the game and, you know, put, put it back in. So I did. 
but it never replaced what I really wanted to do, and that was play. And as much as I enjoyed teaching the kids, I'm, I'm happier now than being um, part of it. Steve, I appreciate your time. I'm with the Cosmos. The story of Steve Hunt is published by Pitch Publishing, and that's available from Amazon and all the usual good bookstores. Yeah. That was Steve Hunt. He was a real gent, wonderful to speak to, generous with his time. And I think one of the things I took away from this interview is that sometimes you can only move forward in your life by getting away from something that you love. And in Steve's case, escaping from football has helped him find the peace that was eluding him for much of his retirement from playing. That and Springsteen. We've got to acknowledge the part the boss has played in Steve's life. Thanks to Jane and Laura at Pitch Publishing, by the way, for their help in setting the interview up. Next week's show is a Patreon special exclusive to Patreon supporters of the show. The guest is former Liverpool star Steve Nicholl, and we look back at the definitive 91-92 campaign that really brought down the curtain on the decline in Anfield empire that had dominated the English game for two decades. We discuss the impact of Hillsborough on him and the team, the lack of impact made by many of Graham Souness's signings that first full season under him, the issues on and off the pitch during that dramatic season, a lengthy injury list which arguably facilitated Manchester United's gradual rise under Alex Ferguson during that period, and the drama of Graham Souness's health issues towards the end of that season. To access that show, sign up at patreon.com forward slash shorts for shorts. Your support for the podcast is appreciated. As always, please do rate and review when shorts were short on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so, even if that's not the podcast provider you use for subscribing. Apple Podcasts remains the all-important way for any show to grow. Thank you all for listening. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts with Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts with Short. If you want to join the group page on there, please do. If you want to drop the show an email, you can get me at Shorts with Short at 1607westegg.com. All my work can be found at DanielRuizTizen.com. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80 synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm.